It's the Victorian Variety Show. Beauty is a form of genius, is higher indeed than genius, as it needs no explanation. It is of the great facts of the world, like sunlight or springtime, or the reflection in dark waters of that silver shell we call the moon. It cannot be questioned. It has its divine right of sovereignty. It makes princes of those who have it. You smile? Ah, when you have lost it, you won't smile. People say sometimes that beauty is only superficial. That may be so, but at least it is not so superficial as thought is. To me, beauty is the wonder of wonders. It is only shallow people who do not judge by appearances. The true mystery of the world is the visible, not the invisible. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast, where I talk about aspects of life during the Victorian era that tend not to get a lot of attention in history classes or from the mainstream media. Or maybe they do get some attention, but usually only from one perspective, in which case I try to examine them from a different viewpoint and raise questions that tend to remain unasked when examined from the more traditional viewpoint. My name is Marissa, and I cover a wide variety of topics because I'm interested in a lot of things, which people find frustrating about me sometimes. But hopefully, you, the listener, is also the type of person who has a wide range of interests. Because when you're looking at history, even though a lot of events and phenomena might not look related on the surface, the deeper you go, the more you tend to find that a lot of these things actually are related. And you can often find common ground when you're not expecting to, which happened to me a few times when I was doing research for this episode. Anyway, the quote that I open this episode with is taken from chapter two of The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, a novel that I'm going to guess a lot of my listeners are familiar with. I would hope so anyway. And I think it makes some of the points that I'm going to discuss in more detail in a few minutes about aestheticism, which might at first sound like something that you might discuss in maybe a philosophy or an art history class. And I'll admit, I got the idea for this episode when I sat down with a book that I have called Art Nouveau, written by Camilla de la Bedoyere, and I was reading the summaries for illustrations by Aubrey Beardsley that I've looked at hundreds of times before because he's been one of my favorite visual artists practically since I can remember. But as you'll see, it influenced a number of areas during the Victorian era. According to De La Bedoyere, the aesthetic movement arose, quote, 
in late 19th century England, largely as a reaction to the utilitarian social philosophies that were present at the time, notably in the arts and crafts movement, end quote. She notes that the 18th century German philosopher Immanuel Kant influenced the doctrine of aestheticism, whose adherents argued, quote, that art existed purely for its own sake and that it needs serve no political, didactic, or philosophical purpose, end quote. As for the arts and crafts movement, Britannica defines it as an aesthetic movement that developed in England in the second half of the 19th century, quote, that represented the beginning of a new appreciation of the decorative arts throughout Europe, end quote. In its most basic form, the arts and crafts movement was a reaction to the mass production ushered in by the Industrial Revolution. Proponents of this movement argued that mass production essentially took the individuality out of the decorative arts and led to a lot of generic products, including furniture, lamps, dinnerware, wallpaper, and textiles. And proponents of the arts and crafts movement sought to promote a renewed appreciation of craftsmanship. So as I see it, the arts and crafts movement focused mostly on the so-called decorative arts. Items like our couches, our rugs, our dinnerware and such, which we use every day and often distinguish from what's normally referred to as the fine arts, such as painting and sculpture. Whereas asceticism is a larger movement that encompasses both forms. Although, as Britannica goes on to explain, proponents of the arts and crafts movement didn't see much difference between the two. And for what it's worth, I usually agree with that viewpoint. So for the remainder of this episode, I'm going to discuss the aesthetic movement as a whole, but I will refer to some individuals who were influential during the arts and crafts movement and trends that were popular among them. According to the British Literature Wiki, the aesthetic movement can be traced back to about the 1860s and became popular in the 1880s, which is why it is often associated with the quote-unquote, and I apologize, I'm probably going to butcher this because my French pronunciation is usually terrible, fin de siècle, which is the French for quote-unquote end of the century a term that indicates that one era is on its way out and a new one is just around the corner. In the case of Britain, this meant that a number of social, political, and economic views and practices that had been common during the first half of the Victorian era were being questioned, largely in response to the challenges that the British Empire was facing from other nations that were vying for a piece of the so-called pie. As I explained in my episode on imperialism and colonialism a few weeks back, due in large part to its supremacy at sea, Britain rose to become, in effect, a quote-unquote global policeman in the first half of the 19th century and remained powerful until the middle of the 20th century. But in the late 19th century, Britain started to see its predominance challenged by its longtime rival, France, the United States, 
and other nations. According to the British Literature Wiki, quote, the glory days of Britain's empire were coming to an end, which laid the foundation for a new, strictly anti-Victorian method of thought. The aesthetic movement denounced the sober morality and middle-class values that characterized the Victorian age and embraced beauty as the chief pursuit of both art and life, end quote. The trials of Oscar Wilde, which began in 1895, roughly mark the end of the aesthetic movement, which would be followed in the early 20th century by modernism. The British Literature Wiki credits two individuals in particular with influencing the aesthetic movement, one of whom is English writer Walter Pater. In the conclusion of his highly influential 1873 book called The Renaissance, Studies in Art and Poetry, Pater stated, quote, not the fruit of experience, but experience itself is the end, end quote, which formed the basis for an important aesthetic principle, that the moment itself, rather than what that moment may have led to or what one may have learned from it is of the utmost importance. To achieve this, we must basically live in the present and appreciate physical objects for their own intrinsic beauty during that fleeting present, rather than reflect on their beauty, say, a few hours or days from now. Because Pater believed reflection causes us to focus on the object's generic aspects, rather than on its own unique qualities. To give you a real life example that's probably going to be corny because a lot of my examples are, say I have a red, juicy, delicious apple in my hand, or if you prefer green apples, of course, you can picture a green apple. Pater would probably advise me to just take in the beauty of that apple in that moment instead of right away thinking of the best angle to photograph it from. And once I sink my teeth into it, he'd probably tell me to savor the sweetness of the juices, rather than wonder how to describe it in the caption for the photo when I put it on Instagram. And would I listen? Knowing me, probably not. I've been known to post photos of aesthetically pleasing meals on Instagram, but that's kind of the point. The point is that if we're spending all of our time thinking about how we'll remember the object at some point in the future, we'll fail to appreciate its true power. Thinking of the food photos that I've posted on Instagram, I probably didn't savor the taste of the omelet or eggplant parm sub that I photographed as much as I could have when I was trying to arrange the shots just right, typing the captions, waiting for the photos to upload, and of course, if the Wi-Fi wasn't great, I'd get a message that the upload failed and I'd have to try again. And there have been a few times when by the time that I got to eat the meal that I photographed, it was starting to get cold. So. Maybe focusing more on an object in the moment makes sense. It really does. But it's not how a lot of us think in this day and age. Instagram is great for sharing what we experience with our friends and refreshing our memories later on. But 
you might say that Pater's words also remind us of what social media has taken from us. The other major influence that the British literature wiki cites on the aesthetic movement is the French poet Charles Baudelaire. By including lesbians, vampires, and sexually explicit material in his poems, Baudelaire inspired estates to test sexual boundaries in their own work. For example, while it would probably be too simplistic to say Baudelaire's poem Le Vampire influenced Bram Stoker's Dracula, based on some articles I looked at, it seems the Baudelaire's work might have influenced Stoker, but at this point, I don't know to what extent. Of course, this is something that I'm going to keep investigating. But I would definitely say that Baudelaire's mid-19th century writings played a pretty substantial role in fostering the environment out of which a work like Dracula arose in the 1890s. And in the visual arena, Aubrey Beardsley's black and white illustrations are fantastic examples of how artists were testing sexual boundaries during this time. But Baudelaire also influenced the esthetes to stress the need for sensual desire and an understanding of how art and life are related. The British Literature Wiki uses as an example a phrase from Wilde that you may be familiar with. Quote, life imitates art far more than art imitates life, end quote. What this means to me is that, let's face it, real life often doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We may not be familiar with what we're experiencing, and that makes us uncomfortable. Art can help us make sense of some of that. We might be able to look at a book that we've read or a movie that we've seen that had a similar scenario or maybe even a painting, and that might make the situation a bit more familiar to us and help us cope. In addition to Pater and Baudelaire, the British Literature Wiki notes that the esthetes were heavily influenced by ancient Greek art and philosophy. By holding the pursuit of pleasure and beauty up as, essentially, the goal of life, the esthetes incorporated the Greek concept of hedonism into their lifestyles. So in addition to focusing on these themes in their art, they often embraced excess in their own lives whether it be through their word choice and its heavy use of superlatives and exaggerated metaphors, or maybe more relaxed attitudes towards sex and sexuality, or their drug use, or even their style of dress. Oscar Wilde is an obvious example, but dandyism, which refers to someone who shows extreme elegance and often eccentricity in how they dress, was common during this time. Male dandies are usually cited as examples here, but females can also be dandies. Thank you very much. In looking at how the esthetes embraced hedonism in their own lives, we can see a strong contrast with a number of the mores we normally associate with the Victorian era. But the esthetes' interest in ancient Greek culture didn't end there. The British Literature Wiki reminds us that great scientific advancements were made throughout the Victorian era, and that science and art are often seen as antithetical to each other. We certainly see this today, 
at least in education in the United States, where much of the funding goes to the so-called STEM subjects, the sciences, math, and engineering, while the arts and humanities receive very little, if anything, in the way of resources and are seen as less quote-unquote practical. But for the esthetes, both the arts and the sciences played important roles in ancient Greece, and they sought a return to that type of environment. And the British Literature Wiki emphasizes that the esthetes were not against scientific advancements, noting that, quote, they too favored the triumph of scientific progress over superstition and the dream world of Christianity, end quote. I do see some parallels here between science and Victorian era spiritualism in the sense that spiritualists also challenge traditional religion. I did wonder if the superstitions that this article was referring to were spiritualist beliefs. It sounds to me like that could be the case, although I'm also looking more into that. But in a broader sense, I find it interesting that the theme of questioning long-standing beliefs runs through the Victorian era, despite the different fields and belief systems of the questioners. So now that I've hopefully given you an overview of what the estates were aiming to achieve and why, I'm going to talk a little more about some characteristics of the art associated with this movement. Going back briefly to what I was saying earlier about the arts and crafts movement, a piece by Anna Souter called The Aesthetic Movement Overview and Analysis points out that the esthetes believe that art should be as much a part of everyday life as the so-called fine arts, which is where the reaction against mass production becomes clear. For the esthetes, something we tend to take for granted, like say a teacup, should be a unique handcrafted work of art rather than a soulless appliance indistinguishable from thousands of others reproduced by a machine. There are arguments for and against this type of thinking on an economic level. Mass production often leads to lower prices, which can make items more accessible to more people. But spending more on a one-of-a-kind handmade item can put money in a hard-working artist's pocket. But the benefit of thinking like this, I think, is that it can help us see art as something that's not so far removed from the rest of our lives. Maybe we wouldn't be as quick to dismiss art as impractical or as something extra as we were just talking about if we were more accustomed to viewing household items as artworks in their own right. However, this philosophy went beyond utensils and had a huge influence on interior design and architecture. An article on the Victoria and Albert Museum website called An Introduction to the Aesthetic Movement notes that the esthetes eschewed the curvilinear forms and ornate decoration that was popular throughout much of the Victorian period and embraced a style that placed more emphasis on line and geometrical form. Natural looking motifs such as leaves, flowers, feathers, paisley, butterflies, and birds, and harmonious colors more earth tones, sometimes accentuated by colors popular in Japanese art, 
such as reds, yellows, and golds. A prominent example is the wallpaper designed by William Morris. If you do a Google search for William Morris wallpaper, you'll see a wide variety of floral patterns with some fruit and a few birds and feathers here and there, and the colors are blended together harmoniously and elegantly. Although there was some trouble in paradise. In my episode on how arsenic was used during the Victorian era a few months ago, I think I mentioned that wallpaper designed by William Morris, among others, contained arsenic that adorned the walls of many homes in the 19th century, and a lot of people became sick as a result. From what I can remember from my research on that episode, I believe Morris originally downplayed the concerns people were raising about arsenic-laced wallpaper, but eventually began producing arsenic-free alternatives to satisfy public demand for safer items. So you might say that Morris is kind of a controversial individual today based on his initial reactions to the hazards of arsenic. But I don't think it can be argued that Morris's design sense and philosophy played an important role in aesthetic design of the late 19th century. According to the Victoria and Albert Museum article, Morris stated in 1880 that, quote, if you want a golden rule that will fit everybody, this is it. Have nothing in your houses that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful, end quote. However, even though the estates were actively trying to blur the Royal Academy's strict distinction between the decorative arts and the fine arts, that's not to say that the aesthetic movement turned its back on the fine arts. In 1848, the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, a group of poets and artists who were strongly inspired by Italian art from the 14th and 15th centuries, formed in response to the shallowness and lack of inspiration that they perceived in the Royal Academy. One of the Brotherhood's founders, poet and painter Dante Gabriel Rossetti, possessed a keen eye for accuracy and vivid natural colors, and many of his paintings feature women with flowing, wavy, often red hair, and lush, naturalistic backgrounds. Although the British Literature Wiki notes in their article on the Brotherhood that they quote-unquote disbanded, which I thought was an appropriate choice of words because the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood always sounded to me like it should be a band name, by the mid-1850s, which is right around the time that the aesthetic movement started to get off the ground, Rossetti's work continued to evolve and inspire other painters whose work is often associated with aestheticism, including James Abbott McNeil Whistler, Edward Byrne Jones, John William Waterhouse, and I think you can put some of John Singer Sargent's works in there. Many of these paintings will show a subject, usually a beautiful woman engaged in a leisurely activity, Maybe she's holding a hand fan or a book or a piece of fruit, something like that. You get the idea. And the background as well as the subject are depicted in realistic detail. So I think they're very much in keeping with aesthetic ideals. I'm going to end this here.
mainly because I would like to discuss certain artists and specific works in future episodes. I remember saying on social media a few months ago, I think it was just when I was getting started with this podcast, that I wanted to do an episode on the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, and I'm glad I finally got to talk about them a little here. But there are other things that I touched upon in this episode that I would like to do more research on and discuss in more detail in the future. But for now, I want to find out what you think. Email me at thevictorianvarietyshow at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at anchor.fm slash marissa hyphen d96 slash message. You can also follow me on Twitter at at victorianvariety1. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13 or by leaving a tip if you're listening to this on the Good Pods app. And finally, if you can take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, Podchaser, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening, that'll really help this show reach a lot more listeners, and I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you for listening and for all of the feedback and support in spreading the word about this show. I really hope you found this topic interesting. And I would recommend that you check out the links to the articles that I consulted in putting this episode together in the show notes. There you can see some examples of aesthetic art. I'm personally very visual, and one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about aestheticism on this podcast at some point is because I'm such a fan of this type of art. And I don't think describing these paintings or illustrations verbally does them justice. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. But in the meantime, I'm going to leave you with another quote from Oscar Wilde, from The Decay of Lying, an observation. I like this quote because I think it suggests how powerful art is. And the distinction between looking at and seeing is important because, again, I think in this day and age, a lot of us look but don't really take the time to see, and I count myself in there. And maybe it's time that we learned a little bit from Wild and the Estates in this regard. Things are because we see them. And what we see, and how we see it, depends on the arts that have influenced us. To look at a thing is very different from seeing a thing. One does not see anything until one sees its beauty. Then, and then only, does it come into existence. At present, people see fogs, not because there are fogs, but because poets and painters have taught them the mysterious loveliness of such effects. There may have been fogs for centuries in London. I dare say there were. But no one saw them, and so we do not know anything about them. They did not exist till art had invented them.